Welcome to BrainStuff, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, BrainStuff, Lauren Vogelbaum here. Today's episode gets a bit graphic about 19th century tuberculosis death and post-burial happenings, so listener discretion is advised. Because, yes, it was a scene only Dracula, Lestat, Nadia, and their blood-splattered ilk could love. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, New Englanders were gripped by vampire panic. In desperation, they began dismembering suspected vampires in hopes of driving off the terror and death that threatened to upend their lives. So, how did vampires come to invade the newly created United States? It all began in some unfortunate New England villages, as tuberculosis, then called consumption, ravaged entire families and communities. This bacterial lung disease, which spreads easily among family members, gives those infected horrific symptoms, fever, an ashen appearance, and sunken eyes. In some cases, they'd bleed from their mouths. It was a slow, deadly course of disease, almost as if the life was gradually being drained out of the patient. It earned the name consumption for the way it caused dramatic weight loss. So severe was the epidemic that it claimed around 2% of the region's population from 1786 to 1800, and eventually killed perhaps a quarter of the East Coast's citizens. We spoke via email with folklorist and author Michael Bell. He said, Imagine a communicable disease a great deal slower to manifest than COVID-19, with symptoms even more ambiguous. One that did not explode through a population, leaving in its wake the dead and those who survived through good fortune or natural immunity and then disappear or become latent. A disease that, instead, once it grasped a person, could go in and out of remission over a period of months, or years, or even decades. No one understood how diseases spread back then. All they knew was that as consumption victims perished, their surviving family members would begin to fall ill one by one. Neighbors could be afflicted too, seemingly at random. Some families would be all but wiped out, while others escaped completely intact. So frightened villagers began to believe that the first to die were perhaps vampires of sorts. At night, the rumors went, those sharp-toothed bloodsuckers would wriggle out of their graves, stalk their own families, and slowly but surely suck the life out of them until they too died horrendous deaths. Terrified, villagers reasoned that there was only one way to halt the vampire attacks, but first they had to dig up the bodies and examine them. If the corpse appeared to be less decayed than expected, they'd slice the bodies open and sift through the internal organs. If those organs contained liquid blood, the person was deemed possessed. Bell said, the theory seems to have been that this corpse was being inhabited by some sort of evil spirit that was sustaining itself by draining the life or blood from the living. This spiritual possession had to be destroyed and the evil bond between the living and dead needed to be broken, usually by burning the infected organ and sometimes feeding the ashes to those who were ill. To be extra sure that the vampire would not arise again, sometimes the corpses were beheaded. Some had their bones shattered and rearranged in a skull and crossbones symbol. But Bell reiterates that these assumed vampires were never living people, and they didn't often use the term anyway. He said, the vampires were always corpses, the people who were performing the ritual never referred to the corpses they exhumed as vampires, although some outsiders, including newspaper writers and local historians, sometimes labeled these consumption rituals as vampirism. 
According to Bell, desperate grave-digging scenes played out at least 80 times throughout the vampire panic. Often, the bodies were disinterred at night, the grisly ceremony attended only by close relatives. But some Vermont towns took things a step further, burning organs for hundreds of witnesses to see, and perhaps providing them some hope that the plague of vampires was ended. Bell said, The earliest documented consumption vampire ritual I've found is from Williamton, Connecticut, in 1784. The last authentically documented case occurred in 1892 in Exeter, Rhode Island. These dates coincide with the consumption epidemic in New England, which began to rise dramatically in the late 1700s and continued through the 1800s. But in 1882, the year that German physician Robert Koch proved that tuberculosis was caused by bacterium, the vampire rituals slowed to a halt. But before it all ended, there was a climax of sorts, one that's become known as the Mercy Brown Vampire Incident. The story goes like this. In 1892, a Rhode Island farmer named George Brown watched consumption kill his wife and then two daughters in succession. Then his son Edwin became deathly ill too. Although he wanted no part of the ritual, Villagers eventually persuaded Brown to let them exhume the bodies of his wife and daughters for examination. The bodies of his wife and one daughter were just bones, but Mercy, the most recent to die just two months prior, was very intact. That she died in midwinter and thus was partially preserved by the frigid temperatures did not stop the examiners from being suspicious. They also noted that her fingernails and hair had grown which we now know is an optical illusion caused by the flesh retracting around them. But armed with this evidence, the villagers were certain they'd found their vampire. They cut out her heart and burned it. Then, for good measure, they had Edwin drink the ashes in hopes that he'd recover. Not long after, consumption claimed him, too. Perhaps it's not surprising, then, that Rhode Island was reportedly called the Vampire Capital of America. Such was the power of the Exeter vampire slayings that their stories carried across the Atlantic. According to some accounts, when Irish-born writer Bram Stoker, the author of the novel Dracula, died in 1897, witnesses say they found newspaper clippings of the Mercy Brown saga in his files. Today's episode was written by Nathan Chandler and produced by Tyler Klang. For more on this and lots of other creepy topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. BrainStuff is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hold up. 